All right, let's hear it for the kids one more time. Thank you guys for leading us. Well, church, what a, a joyous celebration, a, a beautiful time just to see the kids leading us, um, even to speak of the generations. So that's our, our prayer, right? Uh, we would see uh, the generations that disciples would be made, that those kids would grow up to be disciples who make disciples. And so thank you just for your investment in them. So many of you serve with Crosspoint Kids. And so uh, seeing some of the, just the fruit of your ministry. So thank you so much for serving uh, faithfully and investing in the next generation. So friends, um, again, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for gathering this morning. Thank you for bringing the church into this sanctuary. Um, If you're somebody that's new to Crosspoint, we've never been introduced. My name is Jamie, and it's my absolute joy. It's my privilege to be one of the pastors here this morning. It's my joy to be able to open up God's word with you all this morning. And if you're gathered for Crosspoint at home, thanks for bringing the, the church into your living room, inviting us into those those spaces. And so we're going to get into our Palm Sunday uh, message in just uh, a moment, but I want to read a portion as we go to the Lord in prayer here out of Psalm 13. And you may know the words of Psalm 13, or you may not, but I know your, your heart actually does know these words. Like your heart deep down has this longing. We all do, because the psalmist starts out and just says these words, how long Oh, Lord. And it's written from a place of anguish. It's written from a place of trouble, of difficulty, of sorrow, of just a deep sadness. And there's a cry. And one of the things that I love about the scriptures, and in particular the Psalms, and knowing that there's more Psalms of lament than really any other kind, that there's this permission that the Bible gives us, that the Lord invites us into, to be honest, and to cry out when we're frustrated, when we're hurt, when we're angry, when we're sad, when we're confused, and we can cry out with the psalmist, how long, O Lord? And when we are reminded of just the brokenness of this world, how long, O Lord? And the psalmist says, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Like we feel this reality. We think about the events of this past week and another school shooting and what took place at the school in Nashville. And our hearts cry out, how long? And it can feel like, Lord, have you forgotten your people? Lord, have you forgotten? Where are you in the midst of this? The psalmist says, consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Like, I'm not interested in the silence. Like, I need you to answer me. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I prevailed over him. Let my foes rejoice because I am shaken. And then the psalmist, there's this turn in verses five to six, says, but I've trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And it's like, hey man, like, which is true? Like, where is the Lord or you've dealt bountifully? And the answer of the Bible there is, it's yes, like both of those things simultaneously can be true. That the Lord invites us, he recognizes, we'll see in a text today, like Jesus weeps over the brokenness of the world. And so there's this anguish that we're invited into. And yet there's also this reminder that this is not the end of the story. And so we can grieve, but we don't grieve as those without hope. And yet we can be honest in our grief as well. And we can say, this is terrible, and this is awful. 
And so I want to lead us in a, in a time of, of prayer this morning. Um, there's a particular uh, ministry called Every Moment Holy, and uh, there's some liturgies that they've put together, and I want to use that to guide our time. But friends, I also, in particular this morning, I want to pray one of the things you, some of you are probably aware of, uh, we want to pray you know, for the, the families of those that lost loved ones there, whether the adults or the children in that school shooting. But friends, this thing that took place, this horrific thing that took place in Nashville earlier this week also has a very direct impact on people who are members or partners of this church here. And I don't know if you're aware of that, but Cindy Peak, the news, most of the time she was referred to as Cynthia, but Cindy is the aunt of Taylor Buckle. Um, so Taylor and Jeff Buckle that are partners, members here at Crosspoint, this is her aunt. And so she sadly was killed. She was the substitute teacher that was there that day. Um, and so there is a ton of grief that is, that is happening. Um, and so I want to pray and ask you to pray, um, not only today, but in the days ahead for all those that have been affected, but also knowing like this hits here in a particular way. And so Taylor actually was gone this weekend. She left Friday to go be with the family. The service was yesterday. She flies home uh, today. Would you be praying for her and, and Jeff and for the family? Her uncle's name is Chris, um, and be praying for uh, their children as well, uh, Drew and Ellie and Matthew, and there's Stacy and Christopher as well. And so I want to lift them up. These are not the only folks that were obviously lives were lost in this t- horrific tragedy, but I want to bring this to your attention to be praying specifically for a need here in this, this body. And so if you would bow your heads, I'm going to use this liturgy to, to read, but let's enter in. Let it be your words and the cry of your heart this morning as, as we pray, as we grieve together. So let's go before the Lord in prayer. Oh God, who gathers what has been scattered, shelter us now in the shadow of your wings. And O Christ, who binds our wounds, please, Lord, be our great healer. O Spirit, who enters our every grief, intercede now for this hurting people in this broken land. And so, Lord, we pray for Chris, and we pray for Drew and Ellie and Matthew and Stacy and Christopher. Lord, we pray for Taylor and for Jeff and the rest of the family. We ask, God, that you would be their comfort. I pray that they would feel the permission to cry out to you in frustration and in pain and all of the emotions. And, God, we pray for those as well who, who lost children that, that day. God, for the school children, for the other adults, Lord, that were killed that day, for their loved ones that are grieving, Lord, would you minister to them Spirit, enter into their grief and intercede now for these people who are hurting so, so deeply. And Lord, be present in the midst of this far-reaching pain. Oh Lord, for we are reeling again at news of another loss of lives that touches us all. News of flourishing diminished, of individuals harmed, of pain imposed, not only upon victims and their families who bear now the immediate brunt of it, but also upon our nation. For we are connected as a people in this hurt, in this grief, it touches us all. So Lord, engage our imaginations and move our hearts to compassion, O Lord, that we would interact with these casualties, not as new stories or statistics, but as our own sisters and brothers 
flesh and blood, divine image bearers, irreplaceable individuals whose losses will leave gaping holes in homes and friendships and workplaces and churches and schools and organizations and neighborhoods. Be merciful to those now wounded. Be present with those now bereaved. Lord, you do not run from our brokenness, O God. You move ever toward those in need. Your heart is always inclined toward those who suffer. So now let your mercies be active through the hands, the words, and the compassionate care of those who willingly enter this sadness to console and to serve. Be with all who move and have moved toward this need, the helpers, the counselors, the first responders, those who offer aid and protection, the pastors and intercessors, those who meet immediate practical needs and those who seek to heal physical wounds and those who come after to carry on the long, hard work of rebuilding families and hearts and lives and community. Grant each of them wisdom, courage, vision, sympathy, and strength to serve effectively in their various capacities. And even in the shadow of such tragedy, let us not lose hope. Give us eyes to see the rapid movements of mercy rushing to fill these newly wounded spaces. Let us see in this the echoes of your own mercy and compassion, a foretaste of your kingdom coming to earth. And move our own hearts also, equipping us to intercede, to act, and to respond however we are able. Move, O Holy Spirit, in the midst and the aftermath of this tragedy, in the wake of our wounding, and the shock, and the sorrow. And Lord, lastly, arrest the hearts and stay the hands of any who even now might be plotting further evil and violence against others, O Christ. Turn them from hatred and turn their hearts to you. Lord, you once brooded over the formless chaos of ancient waters, and you brought forth the order and flourishing of creation. Do so again, O Spirit of God. From the chaos of this tragedy, call forth new life and order and flourishing. Take even what our adversary might have meant for evil and from it bring forth eternal good. You alone have strength to carry this people. And so carry us now, O Lord. You alone have wisdom and power to heal the wounds of a nation. And so heal us, O Lord. You alone have compassion enough to enter our widespread grief and turn it to hope. Be merciful, O Christ. And God's people said, amen. Church family, thank you for joining in that prayer as we continue to, to grieve. And if there are needs or practical ways to love and care for Jeff and Taylor, we'll make sure to make those known to you as well. And so on this Palm Sunday, in many ways with heavy hearts, it is Good to be reminded of what Jesus came to do, what Jesus came to accomplish. In fact, what I want to put before you as we get into our text this morning is that if we don't understand what's happening here on Palm Sunday some 2,000 years ago, what we'll celebrate later this week in Good Friday and in Resurrection Sunday of Easter a week from now, we will not fully appreciate all that Jesus accomplished because what happens here in Palm Sunday And the depiction that we get in the Gospels, we'll look at the Gospel of Luke this morning, it helps us see more clearly who Jesus is and his beauty, his character, his nature, and what he came to accomplish. And so borrowing a title from the late uh, British pastor and theologian, John Stott, who preached a message years ago, I want to use his title and and some of the, the ideas of this. Our message this morning is entitled, The Donkey, the Tears, and the Whip. 
There are three images that we need to see. We'll spend the most time on the first section, but these three all go together and help us see who Jesus is. And we need to be reminded of who he is in light of the week that this has been and be reminded of what he has come to accomplish, what he did accomplish. And so I would invite you to get your Bibles out. You can go to Luke chapter 19. We're gonna be in verses 28 to 46. I'm gonna read it in sections here. There are Bibles in the pews. You can also scan the QR code in the pew and that'll bring up a little window where you can click sermon notes. And again, I would encourage you to follow along. There's space to take notes there as well. But as we get into this, there are these images. So let's pay attention to these images. They are intentional by the Lord. And so I'll read first the image that we see of the donkey. So this is Luke 19, 28 to 40. Hear God's word this morning. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent, they went away. And they found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples, they began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And so friends, as we get into this and we look at this story of this Palm Sunday about the arrival of Jesus heading into Jerusalem, here's one of the things you have to keep in mind that we all need to keep in mind, all right? If you've ever played chess before, all right, to play chess, like you've got to be thinking like moves ahead. The people that are masters at this game, right? Like they're thinking four, five, six, seven moves ahead, And Jesus, friends, in this, every last detail that I just read and the other things that we'll get into this morning, there's not a detail here this morning that Jesus is not overseeing, masterminding, architecting, literally sovereign over every last detail. Like everybody else in the world is playing checkers, right? And Jesus is playing chess. And Jesus is moving things. And Jesus is accomplishing things. And there's nothing here that's catching him by surprise. There's no detail. He's like, oh, I didn't see that coming. Like he knows and he's sovereign over it all. And so we see this right out of the gate. It gives us some details here this morning. It says, going up to Jerusalem, he drew near to Bethpage and to Bethany. Now, if you read the Bible, like I know I can tend to read the Bible, it's like we just blow past some of those things, right? But if we would stop and consider it for a moment, that again, there's not a detail in here. There's not a geographic location. There's not a name of a town that is insignificant. This is meant to communicate something to us. And so when we see this, most of us are probably like, yeah, I've at least heard of Jerusalem. I know that that plays a part in the story. Like you probably have some familiarity 
And maybe you're like, I remember Jesus maybe being in Bethany and some things that took place there. Beth Page, I'll be honest, don't really know, right? Um, so we, we can hear those things. But here's what I want to put before you. This, even in these details, right out of the gate, Luke is saying, hey, friends, pay attention. Because to the original audience and hearers of this, the lights on the dashboard would have been going off. There's dots that would be connected here. This is a travel route that has been traveled before. Because if we were to read in Luke 19 a little bit earlier, there's an account where Jesus is with Zacchaeus, the wee little man that was he, right? Um, And Jesus is, is with him. And it says he entered Jericho. Jericho is just on the other side of the Jordan River. And if we think about the story and the movement of God's people, they were brought out of slavery in Egypt. They were led by Moses through the wilderness. And then after, because of their disobedience, years of wandering in the wilderness, God says, all right, I'm bringing you into the promised land. I'm ushering you back into the place that you were created to be in. This is where the story is heading. I'm going to liberate. I'm going to bring about this salvation, this renewal, all the things that they longed for. And Moses goes to be with the Lord and Joshua is appointed and they cross the Jordan River. And where do they come to? They come to Jericho. And there's the battle of Jericho. You know the story, right? And all of these details would not be lost on the original hearers. The original Jewish audience that is hearing these things and seeing these things. There's this movement, friends, that is taking place as these details are given. It's saying the Lord is on the move again. And what he did in liberating his people out of Egypt, oh my goodness, we haven't seen anything yet. Like he is bringing and he is traveling that same route and saying, you think Joshua was impressive. There is a new and better and truer Joshua that is on the scene, one who will ultimately save his people. And so Jesus is traveling the same route. Jesus is making his way from Jericho and up the hills into Bethpage and Bethany and ultimately to the Mount of Olives and then down into and going to Jerusalem. And so there's this salvation. It's communicating that. And then Jesus says this, go into the village in front of you. Where on entering, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And so Jesus, who's on this, this rescue mission, this journey of salvation, he picks this animal. Again, he's orchestrating it all. He's masterminded the whole thing. He's architected the whole thing. He is sovereign over it all. And perhaps you're familiar with a particular phrase. It's a quote from a guy named Marshall McLuhan. um, And he got famous for this idea that the medium is the message. I'm guessing maybe many of you have heard that. You might not actually know that it was a guy named Marshall McLuhan that came up with that. But the idea is this. We communicate certainly through our words, but also with what is how the words, how the communication happens, right? The medium it travels in also says things. And it communicates oftentimes even more than sometimes our words. Like the medium shapes the actual message. And Jesus says, oh, friends, I'm going to pick a particular medium. Again, this is not by accident. He picks this donkey to ride in on. And as he tells his disciples to go, we see the ways that he is sovereign over this. Either he's working some sort of miracle in the moment where people, obviously Jesus knows logically someone will ask, like, 
hey, that's my donkey. And, you know, like, why, what are you doing on tying my donkey? And they'll say, the Lord has need of it, right? And so maybe he's just let that person know, or, which is also very likely, that Jesus has made this arrangement, knowing he would travel this route, that he'd be there. And he told the owners of this particular animal, hey, I'm going to send some people in the days ahead. And the password, so to speak, when you ask, what are you doing? They'll say, the Lord has need of it. And you will know, okay, this is for me. And so he's organizing all of this. And when we think about this image, friends, the expectation of that time and that place, if you're a conquering king, a victorious general, I mean, it's horses and chariots, and it's a large, like, following of people. And there's some aspects of that that Jesus has because there's a large crowd, so there's the chanting and there's the singing and all of these things being declared. But Jesus is not on a war horse. Jesus is on a donkey. And Jesus isn't even on a full-grown donkey. He's on this young donkey that no one has actually ever ridden on yet. And this medium is meant to communicate I'm sure there's more things, but just for a moment, think about these things. For one, this image here. I mean, it's that sort of animal that you see in the picture there, right? There's nothing super impressive about that. No one's like, dude, where'd you get that donkey? It's amazing, right? It's next level. It's like the 2024 model came out already, right? Like, it's not it. It would be confusing. Like, this doesn't make any sense. But Jesus is always subverting our expectations. He's communicating something here. And at one level, he's saying... I've come to fulfill the scriptures. And so there was this ancient passage written some 500 years before the time of Palm Sunday in Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. I mean, so far, everybody was like, yes, this is the one we've waited for. Here's our king. He's on the path of salvation. He's ushering it in. And then the twist, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Nothing impressive. And doesn't it fit the storyline of Jesus? Virgin mom, born in obscurity, no room in the inn, grows up in Nazareth where everybody mocked that place, like nothing good comes from Nazareth. That's his story, his beginnings. God, again, communicating. I don't work the way that you expect me to work. So scripture is fulfilled. There's also, friends, there's this subduing. I would not have caught this. I was, I was studying that this week, and a couple of different commentators and scholars pointed this out. At one level, just remember, like Jesus is referred to as the one who is sovereign. He is the creator He's the, the word, right? Like things got created by the word. The power of the word is what upholds the universe. Like literally, we are alive right now because Jesus is holding us. He's sustaining us. The breath you just took, the fact your lungs could take in oxygen, that's all Jesus, right? The fact that he allows you to continue to breathe and me to continue to breathe, that's all his grace. It's all his sovereignty. It's all his control over everything, And he subdues creation, he restores creation, he renews creation, and even him riding in on this donkey, it tells us this interesting detail. And it's not the biggest point of this whole section, but it's one of the details, and it's this. Did you notice how Luke describes it? 
It's one nobody's ever ridden on. Now, I've not ridden a lot of horses or things. I've gone horseback riding before. I know for a fact that when I went there, they did not give me the horse. They're like, hey, this thing's never been saddled. I'd never had a saddle on it. No one's ever ridden this thing. It's wild. It's untamed, all right? Like, that is not how you would want to go on a first, like, horseback riding experience or any horseback riding experience. And Jesus, on the day where he has organized it all, he knows what's about to happen, he picks not only a donkey, he picks a young donkey, and not only that, one that nobody's ever ridden on. Now, if you were the disciples and you knew this, you'd be like, this is not gonna go well, right? Like, how embarrassing. He's gonna end up on his backside on the dusty road. Like, no one, like this, what is going on? And even in that detail, he's subduing creation. He's proving again and again, he is sovereign. He's Lord of it all. But ultimately, this is meant to communicate the Lord saves, but he's doing it through sacrifice. He's not doing it through might and power. He's not coming in the way to just smite the Romans, but he comes as a servant. Jesus shows up and says, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And so the way his kingdom works, the way he brings salvation, all right, it is not in conquering the ways that the Jewish people, his peers would have wanted him to. But he does come in ultimately to conquer Satan, sin, and death. And he's going to use it. He's going to do that in the most subversive way possible. He's going to use the cross, this symbol of death and of power and might of the Roman Empire. And he's going to say, I'll use that to prove my strength, my power. And he's going to do it through sacrifice, through servanthood. And so as we think about this, one of the things I think would be helpful to consider is we call it Palm Sunday. So like, what about the palm branches? What do those signify? And now there's some beautiful things that, in fact, Luke doesn't mention the palm branches, not because he's anti-palm branches. He was allergic to them. There's nothing like that, right? Um, but he other scripture writers, for instance, I'll read in the book of John. All right, we heard this a little bit earlier. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna. This cry, like, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So again, we ask the question, what about the palm branches? Like, what's significant there? And I think it's worth considering this, that as significant as the palm branches are, can we... Remember for a moment, they were chosen by the people. Jesus didn't pick palm branches. Jesus chose a donkey. Jesus was like, all right, here's my moment. And he chooses a young donkey that never been ridden on. The people pick up the palm branches, right? Jesus chooses a donkey. Now, I'm not here this morning to be like, we're going to rebrand the whole thing. It's donkey Sunday next year. Kids next, parents, just get them ready. They're all getting a free donkey. They're going to come in. It's going to be epic, Carpet's going to get ruined, but who cares, right? Like, it, that's, that's not, that's obviously not what's going to happen. But think about it this, from this perspective. Jesus, it's like, here's the image. Now, them picking up the palm branch, there's nothing wrong with that. There's significance behind it. I love that the kids brought it in. We're not knocking that and saying, well, they did it all wrong. No, but the point is this. Palm branches were used in royal processions. They were used to signify a king or a conquering hero, Right? 
And so Jesus is that. But in that moment, they're speaking about a truth they don't yet fully understand. Like it's a mixed bag at best at that point. Because for the Jewish people, one of the things Palms would signify is the victory that Judas Maccabeus had had some time before, all right, in leading a revolt of the, the Jewish people to, to liberate them for a time being. And so it's most, most likely that when they picked up the palm branches, there is this view that Jesus is king, and this signified it. And Jesus is not anti them crying out, as, he see, as we see when we'll look at it more in a moment. He's like, hey, I'm not going to tell these people to shut up. Even if, if they do, the rocks will cry out. But it is most likely that those palms also represented a bit for the people that were like, yeah, it's military might. It's our nationalistic aspirations is what it represented. And so there's this thing like, Jesus is going to do what I want to do. And so there's some true worship that's happening, and there's some false worship that's probably happening, right? And it's no different than how we are today. Like, we don't always get it right. And so it's good to be reminded the image, as important as palms are, and they signify the kingship of Jesus and what we know to ultimately be true, the type of king they're still thinking he is in that moment, Jesus says, hey, you don't really get it. Therefore, let me get the donkey and talk about and let it communicate my humility, a meekness, a gentleness. And don't think meekness as weakness. It's this strength that's under control. Nobody was or is as strong as King Jesus. You know what strength it takes to forgive people as they're mocking you and beating you and spitting upon you and nailing you to a tree? It's a strength that none of us have. There's no weakness in Jesus, but there's this meekness, there's this gentleness, and there's this way that he says, I'm going to bring this about in unexpected ways. And so verse 38 then Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The people begin to quote Psalm 118, this messianic psalm. It was a psalm that the pilgrims, as they, these Jewish people, as they would make pilgrimages yearly for certain feasts and festivals. They would cry this. They would sing this. There was this chorus, this back and forth as they would announce it to one another. And now they're taking that and they're saying, oh, and they're applying it to Jesus. And it's this beautiful picture. It's reminiscent even of some of the language here, Right? Do you remember Luke's account in Luke chapter two? The angels show up to announce the birth of the savior in Bethlehem of all places. They show up to the shepherds. Again, medium is the message. God keeps showing over and over and over again. I don't come in the ways you think. I don't come to the people you think. It's the foolish of the world that get the gospel. And so if by God's grace, you understand the gospel. Welcome to the club of fools that have been radically saved by God's grace. Like that's who we are. We have no business being prideful. And Jesus keeps communicating this. And so even there with the, the shepherds and the angels, the, there's this, you know, like peace on earth, right? Like it's that sort of language again that's being used there. And Jesus invites it, even knowing that not everybody there is ultimately worshiping him. Not everybody there is fully at that moment getting what he's about to do. In fact, most aren't but he still invites the worship. He said, they're saying truer things than they even know. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out, which is just awesome. Like, I don't know why I picture it as somewhat snarky Jesus, but I kind of like that, right? Um, and he's just like, 
Okay, sure, you wanna play that? We wanna go that route? I can get the crowds to shut their mouths for a moment, but look around. Look at the mountainside. Look at the road we're on. Look at the amount of stones and rocks. So you can choose this chorus, or I can make all the rocks cry aloud. But either way, I'm getting my praise. Not because he's egotistical, but because he knows when we're caught up in worship, we are actually doing the thing that we were designed to do is to worship God. And it's people that are gathered in the presence of the Lord. It's what we're made for. I mean, this is New Eden sort of stuff that's happening, right? Like the king ushering people back in. It's mind-blowing. Of course they're going to rejoice. And Jesus is like, okay, yeah, sure, I can try and shut them up, but the rocks will cry out. I mean, praise has to happen. This is what is going to occur. Literally, the mountains and the trees, the trees, it says in the book of Isaiah, will clap their hands. I mean, all of creation is going to burst forth. And so we either join in the song now or we miss out on the worship of our Lord to be separated from him, right? So we looked at even last, that's what hell is. And so the question becomes, are you rightly rejoicing? Are you and I who know the story, who know what Good Friday entails and Easter, like, are we rightly rejoicing what Jesus is accomplishing? I love the way that N.T. Wright in his commentary on Luke said it. He's like, picture yourself in the story. Maybe that you're journeying along. He says this, we arrive at Jerusalem with Jesus and the question presses upon us, Are we going along for the trip in the hope that Jesus will fulfill some of our hopes and desires? Are we ready to sing a psalm of praise, but only as long as Jesus seems to be doing what we want? The long and dusty pilgrim way of our lives gives most of us plenty of time to sort out our motives for following Jesus in the first place. Are we ready not only to spread our cloaks on the road in front of him to do the showy and flamboyant thing, but also now, to follow him into trouble, into controversy, into trial, and into death. We're called to be disciples, to follow Jesus. And it looks different than everybody expected, but it's the way that brings life. The medium is the message. Jesus is communicating through the donkey, his humility, his gentleness, how he's going to turn everything upside down. So that's the first image. We'll look at the next two. We'll spend less time on these, certainly. But what we see, look with me at verses 41 to 44. We see Jesus. You got to picture this, right? Like he's traveling these dusty roads. He's on this young donkey that's never been ridden before. And Jerusalem is now coming into view. And he has like this visceral reaction to seeing the city of Jerusalem. Here's how it's described by Luke. And when he drew near and he saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So picture this, Jesus, the humble king, riding on the donkey, and he gets a glimpse of Jerusalem and says when he drew near, he wept over it. Friends, the the language here, 
like it doesn't quite do it justice when, as we just read it. It's, it's not like, you know, Jesus is getting a little misty-eyed. He's like, oh, hopefully nobody notices or quickly wipes the, the tear from his eyes. This is a full-on weeping, sobbing, like ugly crying sort of moment. I mean, he is so overcome with grief as he is on that animal and he sees the city of Jerusalem. His body would have been like convulsing. He cannot get it together. And if you and I were there, all right, like these disciples, I have to imagine, right? We likely, the crowd was probably thinking this, like, get it together, man. Like, this is your moment. Everybody's been, you know, crying out and everybody's meaning like they're, they're chanting about you as the victorious king and all of this. This is your moment. And now you're sobbing. Like it went from exaltation and palm branches. And now Jesus is just overcome. And at one level, what this speaks of as he utters these words is a prophecy that does come true in AD 70, like Rome just annihilated what was remaining of Jerusalem. Like this does take place historically. But Jesus' grief is not so much about the loss of life there, though that would grieve him, or the buildings being torn down and the temple being destroyed, though those things would grieve him. The deep grief, like the convulsing, the, the tears that just won't stop is because he looks out and he sees a people that will reject him that will never know the salvation that he brings, who've bought into a different story, thinking this is what I want salvation to look like, and Jesus didn't meet their expectations, and they will turn on him. Unless we think, oh, those people, those wicked people that would do that some many, many years ago. Like, we do the same thing. We have a particular vision of what we want Jesus to be and to do, and Jesus says, listen, I'm here to save you, from yourself in many ways, right? Like you don't, you don't even know how wicked and rebellious you are. And there's a holy God and you cannot be in his presence unless that sin is atoned for. And he knows what he's about to do. I have to imagine all of those things, right? Are caught up in this moment. And yet he's so grieved. And so at one level, we need to ask, do you and I weep over our own sin? Do we weep over what it costs Jesus to get us back? Or do we think it trivial or no big deal? Like, well, everybody's a sinner. Like I put Jesus on the cross with my sin and my selfishness, my rebellion, all the things, all of my unrighteousness, and so did you. Like, do we weep over that? And then also, if we're to follow the way of Jesus, do we weep over our city? Like, do you and I look out over the community we're in, the city we've been put in, the neighborhood we're in, the school we're at, the friendships we have, the family members, like the network of relationships, our workplace, a sports team? Like, do we actually, have we ever wept over it? Like, Jesus is inviting us to even consider that. His heart is broken over those that would never come to to know him, that are going to reject him. The Lord is so patient, so kind, longing that people would come to know him. Like I pray this week that part of this Palm Sunday understanding would be for us that our hearts would be broken over our own sin, yes. And then as we rejoice in the grace that we've received, that we would in turn be literally heartbroken over those who do not know the gospel, 
who are looking for other ways of salvation through them getting a good plan, little self-salvation projects, building their identity on things that will not ultimately last. Would people come to know Jesus? Because even as we looked at last week and what we're going to see here in this last image, like there is an actual judgment. Jesus does come to tell people, like, believe in me. I'm the way, the truth, and life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. It's very exclusive, and yet it's very inclusive. Anybody can get in on this. In the sermon by John Stott, he said it this way as we get into the last image. It is only after we have seen the tears in his eyes that we are ready to see the whip in his hand. Please, friends, do not forget that image of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, weeping over the sin and the brokenness, a weeping that would cause him to go all the way to a cross for you and for me. Our humble king riding on this donkey and just sobbing over the brokenness. And you and I, right, like when we get to that point ever of just a sobbing and brokenness, usually one of the things we're feeling is like, I don't know what to do. I can't fix this. And Jesus in his sobbing and his brokenness is not in that place because he knows he's the only one who can fix it. And so would we allow the brokenness that we feel to cause us to run again and again to Jesus, that place of desperation, that place of surrender, that place of like, I can't do this. Oh, we're finally in the spot to receive the grace that we so desperately need. So we've looked at the donkey. We've looked at the tears. Lastly, look with me at verses 45 to 46. It tells us from there, he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Friends, you look at that, right? Word that jumps out or a couple words. Jesus comes into the temple, the place where the the presence, the dwelling of God was. And he says, my house. Do do you see the audacity? See why this would get Jesus? I mean, this this is a bold claim. Like if you guys, you know, if one of you here, you know, invites invites me over for, uh, for lunch today and we go over to your house and we come in and you're getting the table set and I just start wandering through your house and like, yeah, I'm gonna do a little rearranging. I think they're, they, you know, I've watched some like office setup videos. I'm gonna redo this, all right? Uh, I'm gonna move this couch. I'm gonna take this out. I'm gonna start rearranging all of your furniture. I think at some point you would be like, hey, what are you doing, right? It would be weird. It doesn't make any sense. It's like, it's not your house, man. Sit down. You're no longer invited to lunch. That's basically what would happen. But Jesus comes in, he starts overturning tables, he starts driving people out. What gives him the right? Oh, it's his house. Like this place where the presence of God dwelt. Jesus is saying, yeah, like, that's my story. It's the... The, the account that we get in the, the book of John, it, it takes place sequentially a little bit different. John records it. It puts it in a different spot. But telling the same story in John chapter 2, it says this. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. John gives us a little bit more detail. And the money changers sitting there. All this is taking place in the temple. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the, the coins of the money changers. And he overturned their tables. Like If you got this picture of just like, 
long flowing hair Jesus who just never seems troubled and just sort of like floating through, right? It's like, mm, no, dude's throw, like overturning tables, right? Want to know a level of intentionality? He didn't show up with a whip. I'm going to make one right now, right? Did you see that? Making a whip of cords. Like, he's like, I got some work to do. I'm going to take my time. I don't know how one makes a, a, a whip, right? But it wasn't there just laying around. Again, there's nothing like this reactive. Jesus isn't in a rage here. He's not getting angry like you and I get angry, but it's deliberate. Jesus is like, there's some cleansing judgment work that needs to be done. This place is holy. And you can't be in the presence, the, the holiness of God without this cleansing. Even there's this fascinating detail. All of this, the money changers and all the animals that are running around and all the, the fraud and the ex, ex, like the, um, you know, like extortion, just different things that were taking place, right? All of that would have been taking place in what was called the court of the Gentiles. And I love Jesus' heart because the, the heart of God had been, he's raising up a people so that they would be a blessing to all the nations. And so Jesus grieves over Jerusalem and he weeps. And Jesus now comes in and says, the court of the Gentiles, where worship was supposed to happen for those who couldn't be in other parts of the temple, it's now set up with all this chaos and mayhem and all of these things. And he begins to clear that out because God's heart is for all people. So even that is telling us something about the heart of God. And Jesus drives them out. And as you can imagine, this leads to some questions, some confrontation. The religious leaders don't like it one bit, but Jesus is like, this is my house. There's my purposes. All right. I'm here to do my father's will. And the father's will would ultimately be in Jesus taking the wrath of the father that should have been poured out on us was instead poured out on him. And as he's having this confrontation, perhaps you remember these words. The Jews said to him, John records, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus was like, oh, you want a sign? How about this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. And of course, they're thinking about what's before them. They're like, it's taken us decades to build this. You're going to do it in a weekend? You're delusional, man. But Jesus has shown up and said, no, no. The new and better and truer temple is here. I am the presence of God. God is in your midst. And this temple that is me will be destroyed. But three days later, it will rise again. There will be a good Friday and there will be a resurrection Sunday. And I will conquer Satan, sin, and death. The devil is playing checkers. I'm playing chess over this whole thing. I've architected this whole thing. The Lord's will is going to be done. When God spoke in Genesis 3 amidst the curses, that one day he would send one who would crush the head of the serpent. The serpent killer Jesus is here. That's what he's doing. And Jesus says, yeah, this temple will be destroyed. And then I will raise it up. Nobody takes my life. I lay it down and I raise it back up. And he's inviting us into this story. Maybe the way to think about it is this. Jesus, yes, the whip reminds us he will bring judgment, but only after he is judged in our place. So that there's this opportunity now that we get to respond, we get to worship, we get to heed the invitation of Jesus. You were judged in my place so that I now am no longer condemned. In Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. And yes, there's an ultimate judgment and whip that comes for those who have not trusted. But Jesus says, why don't you look at my back? 
Why don't you see the whip that I endured? Why don't you see the thorn marks in my head? Why don't you see the hands, hands and feet that have been pierced? Like I did all that. I was judged in your place so that you never have to endure the judgment. Friends, Palm Sunday is telling us all of these things. So let me pray for us and give us some opportunity to respond this morning. Ask the Holy Spirit to, to lead you Part of God's kindness is he leads us in repentance. I trust that he's brought something to mind this morning and that we would remember the gospel. One of the ways we'll do that is by this meal that we'll partake in in a few moments together. And we're going to continue to rejoice. So I'm going to pray for us. And after I finish praying, if you have got elementary kids, you could go after the prayer and get them and bring them in during this next worship song so that they too can partake in communion if they've trusted in Christ. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy, your kindness. You're just astounding grace. Thank you, Jesus, for coming on this rescue mission. Thank you for being the temple that was destroyed. Thank you for the cleansing we can experience. Because Jesus, you took all of our brokenness, our shame, our defilement, like all of it was put on you. We thank you that you are our humble king, that you are gentle and lowly, that you are meek, that you came to subvert all the ways of the, the kingdoms we trust in. Lord, help us to trust in you and your kingdom and your ways. Form us and make us into disciples that trust you, that you, Lord, that you know best, and that, Lord, you are leading and guiding us. And we're part of this, this story, Jesus, where you're going to come back and you're going to make everything right, a new creation that awaits us. And so we thank you for that day some 2,000 years ago, Jesus, where you rode in. We pray now as the, as the crowds there shouted, we thank you that we have a truer understanding because of knowing the, the cross and the resurrection. And so I pray right now, God, that you would get the glory as we sing to you, as we may make much of the name of Jesus, and that we as your people would just experience a deep and abiding joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.